Welcome to the second episode of our series about the 1800s, 1900s, and 2000s, and today. Episode number two. Yes. Episode two of an indeterminate amount of episodes, but... We might go forever. Possibly we'll go forever. I'm guessing that there's no lack of topics. By the time we finish up with this, we'll have to go back through all the topics and do 2100. I think that we will go on to the 1600s after this. Whoa. Because that's where shit gets interesting. Reverse, reverse. If you didn't think that there was enough racism in the 1800s, we'll crank it up a few notches. You're real racist. (laughs) So in this episode, we are talking about transportation. So we go over everything from boats into steamboats, trains, cars, horse travel, and airplanes a little bit at the end. And then we also, of course, at the end, we'll talk about future travel, basically. Travel, then and now. Where are we going? How are we getting there? You know, like flying saucers and whatnot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Emma. I'm Ian. And this is our podcast, Nobody's Talking About Everything, Solving Nothing. If we get lucky, we might solve something. Today we will start off this podcast, like all my favorite podcasts start, with a segment about the transatlantic slave trade. Mm-hmm. Boom, that's what the listeners want. Everybody's tuning in for that juicy transatlantic <laughs> slave trade gossip. Yep. I'm starting off with the with the good news here. In 1807, the transatlantic slave trade was made illegal by Thomas Jefferson. Thank you, TJ. That's a glimpse into, you know, how it ended. So, thankfully it ended, but... Dude, Tommy Jeff. Yeah, and obviously a lot of people talk shit about Thomas Jefferson for being racist because he was a slave owner. But at least he did this, I guess. But I wonder, like, what the justification is for owning a slave versus trading one. He wanted the value of his slaves to go up. I don't know. I think it was just simple supply and demand. I think that with a lot of things, we have a very hard time with things that are, like, grandfathered in. You know, like, we have a hard time placing morality on things that have already happened or, like, continue to happen versus, like, when we put new legislation into action, that's going to be way more liberal than current legislation that's already been running, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, certain policies are in action right now that we would never put into action. Ever. Yeah. But we just don't change it because it's so entrenched. So if we're looking at the starting point of the 1800s and we're juxtaposing that with the 1900s and today, there you have it. Slaves were traded in the Atlantic in 1800 and being sold off into the Americas. So that's pretty bad. I don't remember any parties in 2007 celebrating the fact that we have no longer traded slaves for 200 years. Yeah. I think you weren't invited. That's weird. (laughs) You would often think that the slave trade, like many injustices, would peter out. You know, like people would think that, oh, it's kind of in a gray area morally, so we're going to slowly back away from it, and then in the end it gets totally taken out. But that is not the case with the slave trade. They really ramped it up in the last 10 years. So the final decade of the slave trade, after which both Britain and the U.S. banned it, saw the greatest slave trading yet. 200,000 slaves were transported from Africa to the rest of the world in those last 10 years. Oh my gosh, that's insane. Mm -hmm. And then obviously all of their children are, you know, entrenched in this slavery too. So 
Slaves were normally sold to European traders by African kings, which I didn't know really. Wow. I would have thought that they just like caught them. Well, they did catch them in raids, uh, but it just wasn't as common. So normally the African kings would sell slaves to the Europeans. And then occasionally they would get them in raids, but the Europeans never carried out the raids themselves. They would have other Africans do it. Because life expectancy for Europeans in sub-Saharan Africa was less than one year during the period of the slave trade. Wow. Because at the time, there was no treatment for malaria. So they pretty much, like, didn't get off the ship. Because it was just... Dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and their system of slavery was much, much different in Africa. There was a lot of slaves, but people weren't born into slavery as commonly as they were in America. They were in slavery because they were in debt or because they're a criminal or something like that. It mm. wasn't like a class thing or a race thing. It was circumstantial. Wow. Whereas in America, like it's totally along racial lines. And as time went on, it became harder to be a free black person in the South. Like that was pretty much unheard of. Mm-hmm. Slaves were then taken on ships and transported to the colonies and the Caribbean to be sold to work on coffee, tobacco, cocoa, sugar, and cotton plantations, and gold and silver mines, rice fields, and the construction industry cutting timber for ships. If you want to learn more about any of those Native American products, go to the Made in America podcast because you can learn all about those. Except for rice fields. How do they have rice fields? I don't know. I'm not sure. Good question. The countries who participated in slave trading the most for their colonies were the Portuguese, the British, the Spanish, the French, the Dutch, and the Danish. There were slaves that were taken to Asia, but not as many. Were the boats used just specific boats for the people, or were they just any boats? Well, the transatlantic slave trade was a triangle system. Remember learning about this in, like, fourth grade? I think so, yeah. So these boats were owned by like a company, like a trading company, and they would drive from Britain to Africa and they would often bring with them obviously either money to pay for the slaves or they would often bring like rum or sugar or something to trade because they didn't have access to that sort of thing in Africa. So the kings really revered access to alcohol. Then they would load up the slaves and then they would drive them to the Caribbean and then they would obviously unload them all, uh, sell them all. And then they would load up their ships with this coffee, tobacco, cocoa, sugar, and cotton. And then they'd drive those to Europe and repeat. That's a pretty messed up business model. Current estimates are that about 12.5 million Africans were shipped across the Atlantic over a span of 400 years. Approximately 1 to 2.5 million of which died during the voyage. Uh, It's like 10%. Yeah. And then, so if you take that 12 million that were shipped across, they estimate that like almost that many died in the raids before they got on the ship or like in the slavery system in Africa that was developed to sell them, you know, like before they ever got to market. Then when they sold them, they waited in like kind of like concentration camp type area that they waited by the coast there to get picked up. And that camp setting had insane death rates because obviously the conditions were horrible. Yeah. So sicknesses ran rampant in there. So, and then obviously the death rate, like I said, is horribly high just during that voyage period because for all the reasons you'd expect, I mean, 
no bathrooms, bad food, bad water, and then for those same reasons, bad disease. And the slaves were shackled to one another, like by ankle cuffs. So two by two like that throughout the whole voyage. And the voyage would be like four months. And they were stacked on shelves in the hull. Yeah. It's horrible. It's hard to fathom, obviously. Very disturbing. Mm Mm-hmm. In 1800, it took more than six weeks to sail between London and New York. If the weather was bad, it would take 14 weeks. Six to 14 weeks? Yeah. Could you imagine thinking that you're going to be on the ship for 42 days, but actually you're on the ship for like 100 days? Yeah, and I told you that the death rates were like insanely high. Like no toilets, no good food and water. So imagine getting on a boat and not knowing if it's going to take six weeks or 14 weeks or you're never getting off the boat. (laughs) (laughs) terrible even worse and death and so obviously we're talking about a sailboat here a sailing ship so just think about that difference alone from 1800 to 1900 they were using sailing ships at that point with just sails nothing electric or motorized it wasn't until 1807 that steamboats were invented i still really don't get sailboats i know i know yeah yeah wind but whatever it just doesn't make sense i know i don't get it because it makes sense to me that obviously the wind goes into the sail and it propels you i don't get how you can steer how are you not just like victim to the wind yeah well they largely were six to 14 weeks (laughs) i suppose yeah (laughs) so the first steam-powered mechanism was a pressure cooker This technology had direct applications to the later invented steam-powered boats, cars, and trains, obviously. But a pressure cooker. They just really wanted good rice or something. I don't know. I'm really surprised that that was the first thing. Yeah. But it does kind of make sense because, like, all they're trying to invent is a way to burn coal in order to create steam, to create heat. Like, it's just a simple version of it. And then you, once you have that going, then you take the, you harness the steam in order to make it do something else. You know, essentially just move things. Cooking is a very easy way to utilize steam. But now if you try to move a train, like that takes a lot more innovation. Yeah, but a pressure cooker, I'm just surprised they would make that first because that's just essentially like a bomb. (laughs) (laughs) Put put this nice bomb in your kitchen. So they messed around with steam technology for a long, long time, but never created anything that was actually good. They never created anything that they actually like produced. You know, it was just inventions, basically, until, like I said, 1807, when the first commercially successful steamboat was, like, open for business, actually, and it traveled between New York and Albany, and it took 32 hours to travel 150 miles. (laughs) Yikes. Eh, progress. They said that there was this wagon that traveled, like, a very similar route along the river, and the wagon would go, like, just as fast. <laughs> but that's, like, three miles an hour. <laughs> Shit. Ocean-going steamboats did not begin attempts until 1817. How many were unsuccessful? <laughs> they didn't make it until 1822. <laughs> well, yeah, they just took small trips and they... Oh, I suppose, I, I suppose you mean, like, they took small trips along the coast. Yeah. And then they, okay, yeah. And they, like I said, they weren't commercialized. So, like, they would do them, but they were just, like, tests. They weren't, like, actually selling trips on it. That makes sense. And another interesting tidbit about steamboats is that 
the term SS before the name of a ship stands for screw steamer. And screw refers to the paddle-like propeller. So hmm. it's, it's just to denote, like, the type of boat that it is. Paddle, you mean like a... Mm-hmm. Those big river boats that you see, like the old-timey boats that have the giant paddle in the back. Like the giant one. That's like, like, that's like a, what's that called? It's that's, called a paddle boat. That's, the, that's a PB. They, they do use the different ones like that. PB, like the PB Titanic. No, it'd be PS, paddle ship. Mm, what's pa- it? No, steam, paddle steam, I guess. I don't know. But. No, because it wasn't, did you say, I thought you said screw ship. It or- stands for screw steamer. So it'd be paddle steamer, probably. The first steam-powered vehicle was invented in 1800 by Richard Trevick. It was a carriage powered by coal-burning engine. I've never heard of a carriage powered by an engine. Well, it's an early form of a train, essentially. Okay. But did it have rails? No, it had wheels. (laughs) (laughs) For some reason, I thought of just combining a train and a car. It's just hilarious. Yeah. But like in a horse and buggy form. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was reported to weigh 3,350 pounds (laughs) with a speed of nine miles per hour on a flat train. (laughs) Trevithick ran this for several hundred yards up a hill with several people hanging onto it. Unfortunately, while the driver and passengers were in a pub celebrating the event, it set fire to a shed in which it had been left unattended and was destroyed. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Isn't that oh, hilarious? That sucks. <laughs> what year was that? 1800? Yep. Dude's a freaking genius. I know. But yeah, like I said earlier, steam was used, obviously, we know for boats and trains, but it was also used for cars too. <laughs> and then seven years later, he made dinner with the fresh cooker. <laughs> with cars, because it's smaller, they had a harder time, like keeping access to water and coal, obviously. Oh, that makes sense, yeah. Eventually, the power of steam and coal were harnessed to allow trains to take over industry. The first railroad in America was the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, which was built in 1827. The Baltimore Railroad is definitely on Monopoly. Really? I think. Well, it's the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. That's the name of it. No, I, think, I believe that's the B&O Railroad. So imagine that, like, at 1800, there was no steamboats, no railroads, and obviously no cars. Like, that is insane. It, it was that short of a time. Mm-hmm. By 1860, the North and Midwest had rail lines that connected every major city. The South only had lines that connected cotton plantations with coastal ports. This was a big problem for them during the Civil War. They had huge logistics problems in the Civil War with like, because the North had all the factories. They couldn't move goods around. They couldn't get goods. Oh. Because obviously the North wasn't selling them to them at that point, so... And then their railroad lines weren't meant for passengers at the time. They were just for cotton trade. Oh. So because they didn't have passengers, really, they didn't bother connecting their cities. So then when it came time to transport troops, they had no way of getting between cities. They were just like single tracks. They weren't connected. Well. That's good. That's good. I don't want the South to have any advantages in the war. Yeah. Not like they put up much of a fight anyway. I mean, they did put up a fight. It was obviously a very bloody war, but they had no chance of winning. The rail system was largely built by 1910. When did they start? 
Well, they started, like I said, by 1860, they had a lot of them already connected in major cities, but it wasn't like fully connected and integrated until 1910. And then 50 years later, it was literally everywhere. Yeah, but isn't that much later than you would have thought? Like I would have thought by 1850, rail was king. That would have been my guess. Yeah, I'm surprised. It, it seems like rail had quite a short boom. Yeah. Less than 100, way less than 100 years. Yeah. Again, I think it would surprise us to know how big rail was into the 20th century. Like I would have thought by 1910, it's over. But no, it was big until like the 60s. You know, like, because trucking didn't get big until after the interstates were built, obviously, which is in the 50s. So we were transporting all of our cargo internally via rail. And I suppose right now they still ship everything in those, like, rail cars. Yeah. And then those get put on trucks to do the last mile, quote. But the heavy lifting is often done by giant cargo ships. Giant, giant ones. Giant. And then those get put onto rail carts to take them to an approximate location. And then it gets put onto trucks. Those ships are so big, it's disturbing. I know. I watched a YouTube video about this guy who was stranded at sea for 438 days. Is that the guy from Life of Pi? No. Oh. I don't think so. I don't know. I would have thought that they made that movie about him. Maybe. I'm not sure what Life of Pi is about. Maybe it is. Maybe this would be a a giveaway. At some point during the... Is there a tiger involved? No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) While stranded at sea, I don't know for how many days, quite a while, I believe over four months because somebody with him for four months, well, that he didn't make it. So it was over a hundred days and he saw like a giant cargo ship. Mm-hmm. And apparently people like saw him and like waved. They can't stop. Yeah. And like just like they, they just waved and like kind of like pointed and, and laughed. And then. They didn't call for help? Nope. He, oh. he was like still stranded for like another 10 months or more. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. And he got lucky as hell because he actually hit one of those tiny islands somewhere near South Pacific. Mm-hmm. And if he had not hit that island, he would have drifted for probably another almost double what he'd already been doing. <laughs> and then it took him like over a year to get back because he had like visa issues and oh, yeah. all sorts of crazy shit. You're saying he didn't have his driver's license at sea? No, he'd already eaten it. <laughs> so then obviously once we got to like the 20s and 30s, cars and trucks started to take away some of that freight from the rails and take away those profits. And obviously then airplanes came along later and then the giant ass cargo ships too. And then cars and airplane, passenger airplanes completely took away passenger traffic in America. In Europe, passenger traffic is still thriving, luckily, and in Japan, but here it's horrible. Amtrak is the only thing we have and it's just not very accessible. We gotta take an Amtrak trip sometime soon. Remember when I looked into taking the train to Seattle and it it would take like two days? Yeah. (laughs) I'm saying what we should do is... Stop a lot. Just take a trip where, yeah, take the Amtrak for two days to somewhere, chill out there. Or we're just staying in the Amtrak for like a week. We just go around the United States, big loop, on the train the whole time. (laughs) Yeah. To read a lot, take a lot of pictures. America's total rail mileage peaked at 255,000 miles in 1916. I would not have guessed that the peak was in that. So you're saying that they finished most of the ship by 1910, peaked in 1916, and then... Slowly tapered off from there. Slowly got rid of shit. Yeah. Just like subways, at some point you gotta start reducing how many you got. Yeah, it's exactly like subways. Enough is enough. 
You mean Subway the Sandwich Company? Subway right? the Sandwich Company. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> After 1940, the use of diesel electric locomotives made for much more efficient operations that needed fewer workers on the road and in repair shops. Oh my gosh, I should have written it down, but they showed graphs on like the amount of rail workers that they had at different periods of time. And it was like hundreds of thousands of people in the earlier days. And then like by 1940, they had like 10 people working for the railroad (laughs) because everything was all automated and like low manpower. Only 10 people? (laughs) (laughs) My favorite railroad word is caboose. Prior to the 1800s, transportation was very difficult and expensive. Over land, people could travel only on foot, on horseback, or in a horse-drawn vehicle. On water, they could sail by ship, just a sailing ship, a barge, a rowboat, or a canoe. Imagine all the cities had a shit ton of horses in them. Just (laughs) shit everywhere. Ugh. So horse was probably most common for like travel that was like you said just moving around like place to place that wasn't on your foot well hold on i gotta tell you more stuff about the shit Mm, (laughs) more poop facts please in the mid 1800s there were over one million horses stabled in london oh just in london i thought you were gonna say like the u.s or something no just in london and 1000 tons of horse dung had to be cleared from the streets each day 1000 tons (laughs) Is that two million pounds? Yeah. Is it? Oh my God. Yeah. Two million pounds of shit every day. (laughs) Where do they put it? Imagine how much manpower is required to shovel two million pounds of dung. Wouldn't that like fill up a house more? I'm sure they hauled it to the country for farming probably. I don't know. But still, it's a lot of effort you're putting in order to just shovel it and haul it. Wouldn't, like, every single farm field be covered in, like, three feet of shit? That's why they had such good potatoes. Oh, wait. Oh. (laughs) Sorry, Butcher Fandom. (laughs) Emma kind of wants to get a horse someday. I really don't want a horse. No, I don't think I... I haven't said that I wanted a horse since we've been vegan. That's true. Veganism is awesome. (laughs) In 1800, there were 24,000 horses in the U.S. Okay, it's a manageable amount. In 1915, there were 26 million horses in America. Those numbers are so insane. 26 million? Yeah. So again, that kind of shifts your perspective because like you'd be thinking in 1800, everyone's traveling by horse. Stagecoaches everywhere. That's what you'd imagine. No, that's 1915. In 1915, you don't really imagine, like, stagecoaches everywhere. That seems kind of more modern of a time, 1915. But no, that's, like, when horses peak. The height of stagecoach. Yeah. And then today, we have 9 million horses. Still? Yeah. I'm sure a lot of those are more, like, for sport or pet or, you know. No, the other day I saw somebody going on first street on a nice steed. (laughs) And the Amish, too. Mmm... In a New York City traffic study undertaken in 1907, horse-drawn vehicles moved at an average speed of 11.5 miles per hour. Pretty slow. A similar study conducted almost 60 years later found that automobiles moved through the city's business district at an average speed of only 8.5 miles per hour. (laughs) So fucking pointless. (laughs) 
So, as I'm about to say, at least we don't have to shovel two million pounds of shit every day, but we do have to clean up millions of pounds of gases in the atmosphere. Yeah, and that's pretty hard to clean up, or at least people aren't willing to. At least if there's shit everywhere, people are willing to clean it up. (laughs) Well, if there's shit everywhere, it's easy to be like, hey, your horse took a shit right here. Meanwhile... People don't take responsibility for their own emissions. Bingo. Yeah. We all look up in the sky and we're like, hey, where'd that come from? That was your smokestack, not mine. (laughs) The horse-drawn carriage era lasted about 300 years, from 1600 to 1910. In America, it only lasted 60 years, from 1850 to 1910. So that, I would think, is contrary to what you'd think. Yes. So that means that in 1800, you really wouldn't be seeing horses and carriages around. You wouldn't be seeing stagecoaches or buggies or whatever. So not much for horses either? Just Well, like I said, there was only 24,000 horses, but oh, the population so was much smaller back then. True. But also there was just way less transportation in general. Like people truly stayed only in their neighborhood where they could walk. I remember seeing a map one time of like different generations and how far they moved in their life. Yeah. And so many of them was like in their whole life less than a mile or something. Yeah. yeah like, yeah, like a radius of five miles or less. So I think you've never read the book As I Lay Dying, right? What's it about? I've told you about it where it's about this family where the mom dies and then they have to transport the mom to the cemetery, which is 40 miles away Mm, because they live like in the country and it's set in 1930. I've not read it. So it's insane to think that in 1930, they had to travel 40 miles. They had like a wagon that they had the casket on. And then for the majority of it, all the family members had to walk. And there was horrible, horrible roads, so they would, like, have to cross a river and there's no bridge. You know, everything's all washed out. And one of the characters ended up breaking his leg. Ouch. Which obviously caused him to die. Was it that they shot him? I don't know. I don't remember, but I I doubt it. But But it's just crazy to think that, like, oh, shit, I got to take a 40-mile journey. And, life-threatening. Yeah, and one of you might die or, like, it takes weeks to do. Why don't they just, like, bury her in the backyard? Yeah, I don't know. Christian things. Toss her in the river. <laughs> so, roads were extremely, extremely bad in 1800. The image that I just described was in 1930. Now we're talking about 1800. Wow. Americans often used trails that were made by Aboriginal people. Like, when the colonists got here... That's what they use, the pre-existing trails, obviously. And the Aboriginal people themselves had followed animal paths that led to water. So paths that had been there for thousands of years. And some of the roads that we still use today are those paths still, because they eventually keep getting redone into now the highways. I mean, M35. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Well, yeah, a lot of our roads go by waterways, which is a natural place to have a path anyways. But remember when we were at that Chicago museum, they showed how like one of the main streets in Chicago was a Native American trail. Oh yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. And it was like one of the only streets that ran diagonal and everything else is a grid. You mean what makes sense versus north, south, east, west bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. I love grid cities. In 1800, there were almost no bridges in America, and the roads were 100% dirt. They weren't roads, they were trails. Or the bridges. The bridges were non-existent. Holy shit. Yeah. So when did wagons get invented? I guess that's probably for our 1600 series. 
Well, I have more stuff about carriages coming up. Stay tuned Wait. for carriage content. Actually, I think I already said the carriage stuff about like how the carriage era only was from 1850 to 1910. Mm, yes. It was much shorter than you would think. So like they really didn't have carriages where you would ride in it like a buggy, like a, like with Amish use. They didn't have that in 1800. So if you think about like the Oregon Trail, that's a wagon, a big one. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes you're not riding in the wagon. Yeah. It's more like a sled that the horses are pulling for to carry all your, all your shit. So. Makes sense. And that's obviously all the travel back then was completely necessary travel. It was you're moving or I don't know what, apparently got to transport a casket. I don't know. You want to take a drive? No one said that. Yeah. Or you don't just like go somewhere just for fun. And for a long time, there has been international travel, even back when there was sailing ships. You know, like monarchs or just very wealthy people would sometimes go to like Australia on a trip. They would be gone for literally like six months or a year. (laughs) That's how vacations should be. (laughs) All vacations should be sabbaticals. I looked at this map that showed, because you know how I told you how long it takes to get from London to New York in 1800? I think it was like six weeks or something like that. I have it upcoming where I tell you how long it took in 1900 and it showed the whole world. So from London to anywhere in the world. If you wanted to go to Australia from London, it was going to be 40 days in 1900. Wow. Just one way. That's so long. And that's dangerous. Like unless you're super rich and have like a cabin on the boat or whatever. Nope. You're crushing it like sardines. Not too different than the transatlantic slave trade. Yeah. Well, remember when I said that the Irish had like a 25% death rate when they were immigrating in the 1840s? That's really bad. Yeah. By 1920, turnpikes were being built. Do you know what a turnpike is? I don't know what a turnpike is. It's a toll road, basically. Yeah, you pay to go onto it. It sounds like the name should have a cool reasoning behind it. I don't know why the word pike is in there. I don't know what that means. I do like it. So up until this point, the 62-mile journey from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which at the time was America's largest inland city, to Pennsylvania had always taken more than a week. By using the new Lancaster Turnpike, which was like pretty much one of the first ones, the journey could be made in fewer than four days. Really saving time. (laughs) So it's like half the time. Lightning. And then obviously the same trip today, it only takes an hour and 30 by car. (laughs) Hour 30. 90 quick minutes. People probably drive that for work. Yeah. By 1904, there were about 2 million miles of public highway. So that's a lot, you know, big improvement. What vehicles were on these highways? Carriages. That's insane. Yeah. (sighs) Well, highway is a liberal word here. Very liberal, apparently. It just means like a road that goes for a decent length. It's more about the length. Okay, so, yeah, I see. Not the width. The width is horrible in this. Like This is a one-lane highway total. Yes, ways. <laughs> they're all one lane, yeah. So we have two million miles of public highway. Sounds good. There was 100,000 of those miles that were covered with gravel. And the rest were dirt. There was 40,000 that was kind of like pavement. It was a crushed rock mixed with tar. That was like okay. the first type of pavement. So only 40,000, and then the rest was dirt. <laughs> So it's like 1.86 million. 90%. Oh, I just have one extra horse fact that I thought would be good to include here. Modern horses are believed to have descended from the dawn horse, a tiny creature 
that was just a little more than 12 inches high and lived 50 million years ago. Absolutely love it. Great horse fact. <laughs> Imagine how cute it was. If that was the case, I'd want a horse. Really? Because it would look just like Leonard, pretty much. I think you don't understand what horses or Leonard looks like if you think that it would be the same. She's horse-like in the sense that their bodies are kind of shaped the same if, if you're drawing them and you're four. Yeah, or me. Or me. <laughs> <laughs> and the horse was one of the last species of livestock to be domesticated. Hmm. Those wild horses just roaming free. Yeah, so if you want to learn more about that, again, the Made in America podcast talks about our history of livestock domestication and how we haven't been able to successfully domesticate another animal for thousands of years. Why can't we do it? In 1900, it would take 7 to 10 days to get from London to New York by boat. That's the fact that I was referring. So it would take 7 to 10 days to get from London to New York by boat. To Australia, it'd take 40 days. 7 to 10 business days? They did business every day back then. Thank goodness for worker laws. Union Zero did work. So in 1800, like I had said, it took 6 to 14 weeks to go from London to New York. Now, 100 years later, it was down to 7 to 10 days. That's pretty efficient. Yeah. Once they got those steamboats in there, it really helped. Once they got those, what did SS stand for? Screw steamers. Screw steamers. (laughs) In 1914, the Panama Canal was built, which connected Europe and New England with the west coast of America and Asia. This revolutionized trade. They call it a trans-Isthmian canal, which I really like that term. Because it crosses an isthmus? Yeah. And an isthmus is? A tiny strip of land between two larger pieces of land. So like Madison. Mm. With water on both sides. But instead we just cut that isthmus right up. (laughs) <laughs> just separate it. We were just so tired of going around the horn. I still were on the horn. How many times have you been around the horn, would you say? <sighs> I mean, it's hard to say. It takes 40 days every single time. So <laughs> The French had attempted to build a canal through Central America in 1880. But after nine years of work and 20,000 lives lost, they abandoned the project. Can you imagine? That's... Pretty bad, France. Construction projects back then killed so many people because they worked with dynamite. That's how they built the railroads through the mountains, too. It's horrible. Yeah, and their technique was terrible. They loved just, like, waiting until the last second and then throwing it. They just, like, took the most ethnic person and then said, like, okay, you're up first. And then on and on. And didn't care. Unfortunately, yes. Like, they say that the Chinese built our railroads in the West... And like I said, Chinese were only 0.002% of the population or something like that. Yeah, but they were like 80% of the railroad deaths. <laughs> yeah, literally. Yikes. How do you have like a number of lives that you're willing to lose before you call it? And like 20,000 is somehow the number? No. It was about money. Money was the yeah. factor. <laughs> yeah. In 1902, President Roosevelt drafted a building proposal to the Colombian government, who at the time owned the region. They had colonized that area, so the Colombian government rejected the proposal, saying it wasn't enough money, and then the U.S. government got very, very passionate about Panama becoming an independent country. It's coincidence. (laughs) You know, coincidental timing is the same time, but... So the U.S. government dispatched warships to the Pacific and the Atlantic side of Panama, and they demanded Panamanian, which I really like that word, Panamanian, Panamanian independence... (laughs) 
And the following year, Panama became an independent nation. That Panamanian independence caused some pandemonium. Mm-hmm. And then the U.S. was able to pay Panama $10 million for a 10-mile-wide strip of land with a $250,000 annual annuity. So, like, rent. Great deal. Do you know how long the canal is? 10 miles. 40 miles. It's 10 miles wide. Oh. Yeah. The U.S. owns five miles on either side of the canal, of the land, so that no one can, like, come in and mess with it. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So it's 40 miles long. Wow. That's a long way. It's a long way. Doesn't look that way on the map. No, it looks like it's like a couple, what, like 100 to 200 feet? <laughs> oh my gosh, I have such an exciting announcement in my life. I now know every single country in the world and where it is on a map, like specifically. Every single United Nations country. What's the difference? Well, because the test was 193 countries and there's like 240 countries. Okay, so yes, correction. I know 193 UN approved countries, and there's only two that are unapproved or unrecognized, and that is the Holy See, S E E, never heard of it, and then the State of Palestine, which the US and the West observes Israel as the rightful owners of that land, but Palestine thinks that they're a country. So I don't know how I feel about that one. But what about is North Korea a member? Yeah. How is that like a thing? We just let that happen? We recognize them as their own country. Yeah, but are they a, a united nation? Yeah. But what are we united with? How come those other ones aren't, like, united? Like, how, how is North Korea mo- more united than... Because we don't recognize those two countries as actual countries. We say, like, you're just a made-up country. Similar to how... Remember how in Ukraine there was those two provinces that, that broke away and said that they're independent nations, the right on the Russian border? Mm-hmm. Because right-wing people in that state revolted mm. basically and so they themselves and russia observe them as independent countries but they're not i mean like the rest of the world doesn't observe them as independent countries so they in their head think that they are and the rest of the world says no so therefore they're not a u.n member but we observe north korea as its own country i suppose but I feel like we shouldn't let them be a member nation or something. There should be a, maybe there is a distinction or something. It's funny because South Korea officially has like you know in their minds or like in their rhetoric, they officially view North Korea as part of South Korea. So do they think of it as like a weird like older brother they don't interact with, <laughs> or what? Well, they're pretty delusional if they think that. I guess they think they it's their right to it. Like, they want to be united, you know? That North Korea shouldn't have broken away, obviously, and all that. But how can you think that you own that land if you can't even go there? If they're not even going to let you onto the premises? Yeah, so that's pretty exciting for me. I now know every country. Wow. It really is a confidence booster, I'll tell you that. Even though she doesn't like it when I say that my wife is wicked smart. <laughs> She is, though. She's a, she's a smart cookie. Well, the next chapter of transportation was cars. Boom. We're on the cars. In 1886, a German inventor named Carl Benz patented his Benz Patent Motor Wagon. Not a strong name. I'm happy they didn't keep the name. Well, they kind of did. Only part of it. But later, you're right. They did make it the second part of the name. Yeah. They merged with a different company. Carl Mercedes. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
Mercedes was a type of car that that company had produced. It was like their signature car. So they used that part of the name. Or they just thought it was a really cool word. I don't know. It is a really cool word. <laughs> but I wish that they still called them motor wagons. Okay, so the best part about this Ben's patent motor wagon is that it was a trike. Yes. <laughs> I think that was probably super dangerous though, wasn't it? That was actually common back then for like cars to be trikes. I so wish we still had them. With the one wheel in the front? Yeah. Two in the back? Just a classic setup. <laughs> you know what I really enjoyed it was when trikes had between the back two wheels like a standing platform mm, for yeah. somebody else to be on. Yeah. I always enjoyed just putting both feet on that thing and like still like running and jumping on the trike. I don't have any memories of riding a trike. I guess because you had younger siblings. I had younger siblings and yeah. I rode a lot of trikes and apparently enough to the point where I have good memories of riding on the back of them recklessly. The internal combustion engine had been invented previously in different capacities in years prior, but no inventor had yet made it in any practical use. So same thing as like pretty much every other invention that I've researched. It usually is around for like 20 to 30 years before somebody actually gets it off the ground. Like the technology is invented, but nobody can actually make it commercially viable. Yeah, I have a lot of inventions like that. I would like to see those inventions that you purport to have completed. No, they're not completed. So what are they? They're getting off the ground yet. No, see what I said was that people had invented a breaking edge technology that they you know made a prototype and it worked and then what you said was a thought like an outlandish thought that there was no action behind okay yeah there's a difference between those two things <laughs> <laughs> it took carl benz five years to sell 25 of these cars the first five years he only sold 25 well yeah because hey buy this car and it's like oh cool, okay cool where do i drive it and they're like I don't know. On the dirt road. There's a paved road like 100 miles north. <laughs> and after only selling 25 cars for five years, he then switched to four wheels. So. Yeah, it sounds pretty cool, but maybe if it had one more wheel, <laughs> then I'd buy it. At first, he just put it like off to the side awkwardly, but then no, he decided on the rectangular shape. So interestingly, electric cars were also invented at the same time, but fewer companies produced them until they were totally eclipsed in the market. Those companies just went bankrupt. Gas is just way cooler. At least it was. So yeah, the, this is definitely one limit of capitalism, is that the most commercially viable idea wins, not the best idea. The one that you can make money off of the most easily. The diesel engine was invented in 1892 by Rudolf Diesel. It's another really strong name. I guess I never thought about where the name Diesel came from. You thought it was like some Rottweiler that was just named that always? I think it came from like a dog and then became <laughs> gas. <laughs> thought that it was like a scientific abbreviation or some shit. I have no idea. I just feel like men are always naming their dogs Diesel. Well, yeah. It's a tough name. And like Chevy and things like that. I don't know. People always talk about Chevy being such an American brand, but obviously it's a French name. So Yeah, the other day... I saw this pretty cute dog, and the owner was this dude, and I walked up, and I said, hey, that's a cute dog. What's his name? And he said, oh, this? This is Dodge Durango. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this? This is Ford fully loaded Super Duty <laughs> extended cab. Yeah, which these two facts about Carl Benz and Rudolf Diesel really illustrates how back then, up until semi-recently, 
every company was just named after a man's last name and every like word, like new invention. Thank goodness they stopped doing that. Yeah. So they like totally stopped. Apparently it seems like you're never going to like a drugstore where it's called Hildebrandt and Schmidt drugs. Well, imagine if you got your packages delivered and it was free shipping because of Bezos Prime. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, nowadays companies just try to name their companies with as few vowels as possible. And it's just one word. The name has nothing to do with what the company actually sells. It's just like a random word that's just supposed to be memorable. Yeah, but it makes it for some cool names. Like Verbo? I don't like that one. What the fuck is Verbo? Isn't that like an abbreviation? I have no idea. I think the first two letters are like... Vacation vac- Rental? Mm-hmm. I think it's Vacation Rental book online. Oh, shit. All right. It's a cool name. <laughs> <laughs> As if people would be booking anywhere else. Vacation Rental. Call now. <laughs> yeah. What if they started calling it like automobile drive on road? Like... <laughs> <laughs> In 1894, oh shit, I must have subconsciously absorbed the name Hildebrandt because that's my next fact. That's why I said it as a random name, but it must not have been random. All right, so Hildebrandt and Wolfmeyer became the first produced motorcycle in the world and the first to be called a motorcycle officially. They used the German translation, which was Motorrad. <laughs> How many <laughs> wheels? Two. That makes sense. That's what made it a motorcycle, not a car. Well, I guess you could have like a two-wheel car that you sit inside instead of on. Or a three-wheel motorcycle. Yeah. Or a one-wheel motorcycle. I don't think so. Have you ever seen those things where it's like a big wheel and they like sit inside of it? (laughs) (laughs) Stupid. By 1903, Triumph Motorcycles in England were selling 500 motorcycles a year. So that became like the biggest one. The pictures of these bikes... It just blows my mind. It looks like a regular bicycle, literally just like a tiny frame with a motor strapped onto it. (laughs) Just a bicycle with a playing card in the spokes. (laughs) Okay, now back to cars. So by 1901, we started to get large scale stationary production line manufacturing of affordable cars And the first to do that was Oldsmobile factory in Lansing, Michigan. Oldsmobile? I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah. And it's funny because the owner of that company was Ransom Olds. Oh my God. (laughs) I was going to make a joke and say back then it was called Youngsmobile. I'm glad you didn't. Thank goodness. One of the first cars accessible to the masses was the 1908 Model T made by Ford Motor Company. At least his name wasn't Ford. Oh, wait. It took them, what, like 17 tries to get to the T before they really found the winner. Ford Model A. Absolute failure. Yeah. So in order to accomplish lowering the price so much and getting enough cars that the masses could start to buy them, Henry Ford innovated the first use of a moving assembly line in any form of manufacturing around the world. Wow. So cars, like I said, Oldsmobile is very, very new technology to have an assembly line at all. No manufacturing had been doing that. And then now, seven years later, Henry Ford put the first moving assembly line so the workers would stand in one place. 
stationary lines could produce a car using 12.5 man hours. Ford did it using just one hour and 33 minutes of man hour. Damn. He was just cranking them things out every 15 minutes. So for everybody else, they were making cars every like two hours. And then meanwhile, Henry Ford's got eight of them done. Mm -hmm. Ford started producing his cars in only black because there was only one kind of paint in the world that could dry quickly enough to not create a bottleneck in those 15 minutes of production. (laughs) (laughs) Sir, we can't find any other colors besides black. Fuck it. They're all black. (laughs) Yeah, he has like a famous quote that says, We'll produce these in any color so long as it's black or whatever. (laughs) The color of the paint was called Japan Black. It's from Germany. I'm just kidding. In 1914, an assembly line worker could buy a Model T with four months pay. I wonder what's like the average. How much is a new Toyota Corolla right now? (laughs) The modern Model T. Well, a Dodge Durango is 45000 <laughs> Which for the average person is like a year's salary. Yeah. So we have family in Marquette, Michigan, and they have a house on Lake Superior. And near their house is a town called Big Bay, where we have gone boating. They have like a big boat and it's kind of crazy to go out on Lake in it, but it's really fun. So back in the day, Henry Ford actually owned pretty much the whole town of Big Bay, Michigan. And he used it as a vacation place for his family and company executives. Gorgeous place, can't blame him. Mm -hmm. Ford was on a mission to make the supply chains for the company completely self-sufficient. So he wanted to be able to produce his own lumber and rubber and everything that he needed. So he couldn't get upcharged. He purchased over 313,000 acres of timberland in the UP and set up remote sawmills throughout the region. Just a madman. Yeah, Big Bay seems like a good place to go for vacation, especially if you obviously have the most high-powered job in the world. But he lived in Dearborn, Michigan, which is a suburb of Detroit. And today that trip takes eight hours by car. Oh, so it took, what, four days before? It must have. Forever, probably. Yeah. Yeah, especially with where that place is. That had to be so fucking remote. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. So Ford also bought 62 houses and the general store in Big Bay. The general store he remodeled and converted into the Big Bay Hotel, which is that hotel that we toured and had dinner at. So cool. Yeah. He bought a big sawmill that had previously been supplying the country with our bowling pins. Don't know what happened to the bowling pins after that, but... It was definitely a a lull in bowling alley success. Yeah. That was back when they actually had pin people in the back there setting everything up. Back when they used to call people that bowl, they call them keglers. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Why? I don't know. He even went so far as to have several houses and the Catholic church and a nearby road relocated so that he could see his sawmill with an unobstructed view from the second floor balcony of his hotel. (laughs) The more you read about this guy, I like him more and more. <laughs> I can't tell if he's, like, cool or just, like, a megalomaniac. Uh, I think he's cool. <laughs> then again, I hope that anybody that reads about Jeff Bezos 100 years from now thinks that he's absolute lunatic. Yeah. Well, he'll be on Mars still alive, so... <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, true. 
According to town lore, Ford would sit on the hotel's porch and watch the workers at his sawmill, all the while handing out dimes and nickels to local children to purchase something from the general store. Yep, I love him. That's the most chaotic, good thing, but also, like, evil. Yeah. It's like, oh, you slid away all day long. I'm going to give your kid your whole day's wages, and then your kid's going to blow it all at my (laughs) store because they have no idea the value of money. (laughs) When visiting his own hotel, Ford would always stay in room 201, and it still has a little nameplate with his name engraved attached to the door, which we saw. It's pretty cool. H4. His wife also had her own room, which we also toured, and it was the only room in the hotel to have a private bathroom in the room, which was just like an open room with the bathtub like in it. It wasn't like a separate bathroom, but still. In those days, it was completely not heard of to have a separate bathroom. And the rest of the hotel, including Henry Ford, used dorm-style bathrooms where you'd go down the hall to the communal bathroom. From the hall, take a dump. See Henry Ford washing his hands. And the hotel is still totally original. It still operates like that. The visitors of the hotel use the communal bathroom, which honestly isn't that crazy. No. It seems crazy that most people would think that that's horribly inconvenient. That's how most people operate at their house. I guess master bathrooms have become more popular in houses, but... Most people don't use master bathrooms like as their main bathroom, except your dad, which is pretty cool. What do you mean as the main bathroom? Like, they wouldn't go into the bedroom just to go potty, only at night or something. Yes. Yeah. I like having just, like, a really nice bathroom that we can use all day and that guests can use instead of just having it in our room. Yeah, I totally agree. I wish every room just had a toilet in the corner. (laughs) (laughs) There were more than 200 American car companies in the 1920s. By the 40s, it was down to 17. Wow. They just totally crushed all the competition and just monopolized the industry. I'm amazed there was just that many companies. Anybody was just trying to make cars? Well, back then, we didn't have giant companies. I suppose. We had local companies. It wasn't economically viable for people to ship things everywhere. It was way cheaper to just build it where you need it. And people had small businesses that weren't immediately getting driven into the ground. So like a hundred of those car companies were selling like 10 cars a year. Yeah. But because Ford was producing so many, they couldn't keep up with his tiny margins. Meanwhile, Ford's producing four cars every hour. Mm -hmm. All black, all the time. (laughs) (laughs) World War II saw a boom in the usage and demand for motorcycles. In previous wars, they had used horses for fast communication now they use motorcycles. And that's still how they communicate today. <laughs> Imagine being like, hey, there's coming! You like run out, get on the motorcycle. <laughs> you like try to do the kickstart and it's not working. You're like, fuck, fuck, shit. Is a choke on them? He's coming! They're wearing like those leather hats for some reason. He, like, he, like, so he <laughs> finally starts it, goes like down the driveway, fuck, turns around, goes back up, grabs back and says, like, What'd you say again? What'd you say again? <laughs> that would be I told you to write this down. 
Oh, yeah, Hitler's coming. <laughs> so Harley-Davidson was devoting over 50% of its factory output toward military contracts by the end of the war. That's crazy. I wonder how many motorcycles the government buys today. <laughs> I honestly wouldn't be surprised if I saw Joe Biden on a motorcycle. <laughs> Just ribbing it up on a sick Harley with his aviators on. <laughs> Just driving around with no helmet and a bunch of vaccines. <laughs> Japan's economic powers did not flourish until after World War II. So prior to that, they had almost no car production. They were not an industrialized country. Toyota... Nissan, Suzuki, Mazda, and Honda began as companies producing non-automotive products before the war, switching to car production during the 1950s. So that's interesting. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It was common for car companies that they would start off as carriage companies, and then they would just take the carriage and just slap a motor onto it. (laughs) (laughs) Toyota used to be called... Toyota Loom Works, until they started to only manufacture cars. They changed the name. And also, that name that I just said was Toyota with a D, not T. Toyota? Toyota. Toyota. Yes, Toyota. <laughs> so you don't like my other joke? No. But isn't that crazy? Toyota Loom Works. Because they made looms? They made stuff using looms. Mm, like blankets? Well, like the Lloyd loom that's in town here, they make wicker. Oh, yeah. You can loom a lot of different shit. You can't loom a car, though. That's why they had to change the name. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, makes sense, though. Toyota is now the biggest car company in the world, and China is by far the biggest manufacturer in the world by, like, more than double. By triple. But Toyota's not a Chinese company. I know. They have their manufacturing in China, just like many American companies. Well, who in the world buys Chinese cars except Chinese people? All of our shit is produced in China. It's Japanese cars that are produced in China. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. Today, electric cars are becoming more popular and more cost-effective. They are predicted to cost less to buy than gasoline cars before 2025 in three years. Perfect. So that means our next car will be electric. Yeah. I'm guessing. It in 2046. I'm hoping that in 2025 we get an electric car, and then five years from that we get an automated car, and then five years from that that one like breaks down or whatever, and then we have no car for the rest of our life because they finally fix like public transportation or some other shit, high speed rail. So you're saying by 2030, everywhere in the world, including the island of Michigan, will have ride sharing cars mm-hmm. that are self driving. Yes, or, like I said, high-speed rail for longer distances. Fuck yeah. I don't know. I mean... Production of gasoline-fueled cars peaked in 2017 and are now projected to take a very steep and permanent downturn. That's a great fact. Yeah. By the end of 2020, there were more than 10 million plug-in electric cars on the world's roads, which sounds like a lot, but it's only 1% of the cars. Oh, wow. Yeah. But better than that is... It obviously has very rapid growth. So 5% of the cars that were sold in 2020 were electric. Wow. Yeah. It's just that obviously there's older cars on the road. All fossil fuel vehicles will be banned in Amsterdam starting in 2030. Oh, Amsterdam. Yeah. Of all the motorcycles in the world, 58% are in the Asia, Pacific, and Southeast Asia regions. Just like all the people in the world. Yeah, pretty much. But I guess that's good for them. It's a more environmentally friendly way to travel. 
That's true. It's also really cool. And then taking us into more of the modern era, we also have airplanes. They were invented in 1903 by the White Brothers. The Wright Brothers? Carl <laughs> <laughs> <Carl> and Emma. <laughs> Air innovation was quickly driven by World War II. They pretty much took off at the same time. So you're telling me that war advanced motorcycles and airplanes. And medicine. And medicine and horses. Mm-hmm. Cars was all just Henry Ford and Carl Benz. Wait, horses? How was horses? War? I don't think they used many horses in World War II. Okay, so maybe not horses. <laughs> A helicopter was invented in 1939. That's pretty cool. That's really cool. Basically, just a hover plane. <laughs> Speaking of transportation, we have within two minutes of us a battleship factory and a helicopter factory. Mm-hmm. And a caterpillar factory. They make big caterpillars. <laughs> yeah, those battleships are very scary, and I wish that we didn't live in a city that produced those. I feel like there's almost nowhere in the world where there's a helicopter factory and a battleship factory this close. <laughs> yeah. The word helix from helicopter means whirl and spin. That's the prefix of the word. And then pter means wings. Love that. Yeah, P-T-E-R. So you're saying it's helico and pter. Yes, because people often think that it's heli and copter, but it's not heli and copter. It's helio and pter. It's very interesting. Helio or helico? Helico. Helico, pter. Yes. (laughs) And then the pter is also used in words like pterodactyl. And pterosaurus rex. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently hydrogen planes are possibly the best vehicle we could possibly have for hydrogen-powered vehicles, which seems like a pretty crazy thing to do. Reason being, as the planes fly around the air, they can kind of just like pick up hydrogen. Hmm, that's cool. Because if they have good enough, like these filters where they just catch hydrogen as they're flying around, then immediately, boom, you got, you're picking up fuel along the way. So that would be completely fine for the environment, right? Because the only reason that air travel is bad for the environment is just because of the emissions from the gas that they're burning, right? Correct. Yeah, and same with cruise ships. Mm-hmm. Like if they were powered by a renewable source, then it'd be totally fine. Mm-hmm. So it's cool. We might finally get to go on a cruise. Why don't they make cruise ships nuclear-powered like submarines? Submarines are nuclear-powered? hmm oh. That's kind of a neat thing. So is that, like, similar to burning the hydrogen, or...? No, it's like a nuclear reactor, essentially. That's the engine is a nuclear reactor. Yeah, and it just harnesses the power from the explosion. Mm-hmm. Huh. I wonder how tiny the explosions are. Well, technically, the explosions in every nuclear reactor are extremely tiny. But it's just a matter of how many explosions are happening at once. Correct. Yeah. Huh. Nuclear, if done right, is super clean. Especially with, depending on which element you're using, it has different levels of waste that is more or less damaging. Aren't hydrogen and helium the only two that they use? or? No, that's, that's different. That, that's just like burning fuel, I think. I think that typically it's larger atoms such as like uranium and plutonium. Mm-hmm. Things like that. And the one that's supposed to be really good that's not yet very much used is thorium. It is an extremely powerful radioactive reaction. And the 
materials and elements that you end up with at the end is a lot less damaging to the environment than all the other shit that we already use. So, so you would mine the thorium. Correct. Yeah. And then explode it. Correct. Yeah, we're living in a pretty cool time, but I'm pretty ready for hydrogen planes, flying taxis to just take us anywhere. I mean, you know, think about all the shitty parts of planes right now. Imagine if we just had Uber, where they would just pick you up and they just fly you straight up anywhere. Self-driving car, just bam, just gets you anywhere. Like a little drone or something? Yeah, like a little drone. You know, it could look like a car and then it just takes off, you know, any way, shape, or form. It could be a helicopter. <laughs> you know how drones, when they carry packages... Don't they sometimes carry it by like a string? Probably not, but on cartoons, probably, yeah. I was going to say, like, what if you were carried by a drone in that way and you were like in some type of little egg that you were in? That feels less precarious than some of the Ubers I've been in in different cities. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, in our lifetime, transportation is going to be totally revolutionized. It's going to be unrecognizable. Well, as I said, look what transportation looked like a hundred years ago. And we might live another hundred years. When people say things like we're progressing faster now than ever before, that shit blows my mind. Yeah. Because we've already been progressing so fast, you mean? So fast. Sometimes I feel like, obviously we can all recognize how quickly things have progressed in the 20th century. It's so obvious. And then at the end of the 20th century, we got the internet, which is like the biggest progression humankind has ever done. And we can all recognize the weight of that. But then in these last 22 years, which has been our whole life, we kind of feel like, oh, nothing has changed. And those, you know, like we still have the internet, like we still have cars, everything seems the same. But then once you really think about it or like you see a movie from back then. When you're really in it, it doesn't feel as revolutionary as it is. But after you really look at it and realize, oh, shit. You know, kind of because of the internet, we're seeing these changes happen every day, all the time. There's always new mind-boggling things. It feels sometimes like that's the norm and that's hard to notice day-by-day changes. But if instead you saw one video a year that talked about what happened each year, you'd quickly recognize all this insane amount of change. Yeah, like when you think about the fact that, like when I was a freshman in high school, which was only 11 years ago, I didn't have a smartphone Almost nobody that I knew had a smartphone, except for one of my good friends, Amber Trice, had a, I mean, it's a different definition of what's a smartphone at that point, but she had what would be one of the first smartphones. And I remember like her going on the Facebook app and it was so shitty. (laughs) It was horrible. Like I didn't even want to look at it because it was so bad. And we would like log in to my account and then log into hers, <laughs> yeah. you know, like to switch back and see like what messages we got. But it was so bad. <laughs> so flying taxis are what? Like the drone thing? I think. Hmm. If I put a question mark after it, that means that's just straight up everything right there. That's all you know about it is just flying taxi. Think about it. <laughs> Lately, we've been pretty burnt. Can't really tell why. Going to a cabin should do some good for the spirit. Probably because I've had like a fucking million appointments this week. Yeah, but you have off on Friday, so it'll help. It'll help. But it doesn't really help when you do four hours of traveling in one weekend. It kind of burns it up. It's not too bad. Two hours on our end of it, it's not that much. Wish it was a little less, of course, and wish or wish we were there longer, but it doesn't matter. When you're listening to this, it's all irrelevant. Plus, Time is made up anyway, so. Yeah. 
Stupid Julian. Just making up calendars. Yeah. Even worse than the Gregorian. Yeah, Pope Gregory. Ugh. <sighs> Horrible. Almost as bad as the Pope who got rid of the holiday that used to be Valentine's Day. What was that Satanist sex party called? I don't know. But I'm sure it's coming back. <laughs> Almost like the Pope that suggested we start celebrating Christmas 400 years after Jesus died. Popes are crazy as shit. Mm. I would say we have probably the first good Pope right now. I'm sure there's been like, I don't know my Popes well. I do. Especially from like 1100 to 1500, I get really spotty on my Popes. So it goes, Pope John is in it right now. And then before this was Pope Christoph the 17th. And then before that, Peter the 5th. And then before that, Johnny the 1st. And that brings us back to the inception of America. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're the Pope listening to this and we said your name out of order, we do apologize. I feel like all my feelings right now would just turn this from a podcast into an audio journal, and that's probably not what the listeners want. Yeah, there's a reason why your journal will never get published. Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> well, and again, hopefully if it works out the way it should in a you know, couple years to many years, it'll be quite a success story. Well, that's also the scary thing like about my book, because that's kind of just my own journal, diary probably even, at that age. So hopefully it doesn't sound like my ramblings. No, you're telling a story that happened in the past. I'm just rambling about my current mental state. Yeah. Which is way better. (laughs) But also, we're working on stuff. We're workshopping things right now. Yours is better? Oh, from what it once was? Absolutely. Oh, I thought you meant your story is better than mine. Oh, absolutely not. (laughs) No, 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 no. No, my journal's terrible. I'm just saying my mental state is improving. It's improving or it's just roller coastering? Well, it's hard to say because what makes discontent is probably falling short of where you want to be. Yeah, and you always want to be better. And while, you know, if I used to be a 1 out of 10 and I was trying to be a 2, mm-hmm. well... Like uh, physically looking? No, just okay. <laughs> overall, because I'm still trying to hit that number. If, you know, now if I'm what? What am I? A 6, I'd say. Nice. I, was gonna say I meant physically. Mentally. <laughs> Physically, I'm probably yeah, somewhere six or six and a half, probably, overall. Maybe a little better. I don't know. Seven out of ten, maybe. Uh, six and a half? There is no half points. It's rounded down. Six it is. <laughs> cool with that. Mentally, what am I? If I used to be a one shooting for a two, now I'm what? A two you shooting for a three. one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If I used to, whatever, I used to be a three going for a four and a half. No, you used to be a five. Now you're a seven. Holy schnickel. That's a lot. Either way, I got a long way to go, apparently, according to me and some others. On Justin Long's podcast, him and his brother were talking about how they think that the people like all the bullshit in there. Well, if we kept all the bullshit in our podcast, it'd be twice as long. Yeah. Plus, it'd mostly just be sounds of me and Leonard's mouth smacking around. Yeah. It's a good thing that you don't eat any slurpable foods while on this podcast. It depends on what kind of podcast you're going for. Okay, no, you're right. This podcast would not be right for the slurp. I would argue nowhere is right for the slurp. I got Ian on muesli for breakfast, which I'm very happy about because it's a very healthy breakfast. However, the side effect is that he's a slurper, just like Leonard. The only person more picky about my 
habits than I is... You're not picky about your habits. Oh, I'm very picky about my habits. Not your little ones. True. Well, my big ones, I am. <laughs> I was very picky about my habits. But I suppose slurping leads to divorce, so I probably shouldn't do it. <laughs> they don't call it picking. They call it nitpicking. Mm, that's what they call it. They don't call it loving? That's what it feels like. <laughs> but once I abolish one of your bad habits, then you just start another one. So. No. Like what? Like pickleball? <laughs> <laughs> Mark and I got third in nice. a pickleball tournament. Fucking awesome. Scraped their way to third. Scraped their way to third? Well, then again, we really could have crashed and burned our way to third because third was also a fancy way of saying last place, but... We got third. We won our last game. Came back down 1-8. Felt pretty good. Had not been for that victory. Probably would have walked out of there without that medal. Because it would have been in the garbage? No, because I wouldn't have waited around to get that stupid-ass medal. I would have just said, get me out of here. I was honestly, like, surprised that you did wait around. Why? Well, because when you guys were done playing, I was watching you guys, and I'm like, okay, why aren't they, like, packing up and leaving? Mm -hmm. And then... My mom's like, well, they want to wait for the medal ceremony because, like, the other people are going to get their shit. I never thought that you guys would get one. Oh, fuck yeah, we got one. And she thought that it was going to be polite for you guys to, like, wait and watch them get their medals, like, as a respect thing. But I didn't think they would give you, like, a pity medal or whatever. It's not a pity medal. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations, you champions. Still waiting for an email response after I griped about that, but yeah, nothing yet. Well, I suppose you'd know quicker than I would, probably. Because I'm your secretary? Well, you're my life manager. Yeah, it's just a fancy way of saying it. Secretaries don't work (laughs) 24-7. We think that last night Leonard might have eaten one of our tonins. Yes, for two reasons. A tonin disappeared, which is short for melatonin for the uneducated. And the other reason is that she slept like a goddamn rock for 13 to 14 hours straight. Yeah, and I had to call in Ian at one point because I thought that she might have been dead, but she wasn't. She was really asleep. She woke up in like a second. I like tried to jiggle her and I was yelling her name. She didn't do anything. Do an example of exactly how well that was. Mm-hmm. That's shocking that she didn't wake up. <laughs> I really hope that travel improves because I find travel very, very uncomfortable, especially like international long travel. It takes so long and it's so bureaucratic. Travel is dumb and it needs to get way better. It needs to be safer, quicker, and less polluting. Yeah, way quicker. Way quicker. (laughs) Like if everything about planes, every single step of the way, got you there 10 times faster than what it happens right now, but it's 10 times more dangerous, would you do it? (laughs) No. I would totally do it. I guess it's not dangerous at all. I believe planes are 53 times safer than cars on average. Yeah. Which means they'd still be five times safer than cars. Mm-hmm. The cars aren't that safe. Yeah, this is five times as safe as that. Yeah, true. Whenever people are asked the superpower question, they always say flying. Or if they don't say flying, they say something else stupid like super strength or something like that. And that's how I know that those people are idiots. Because it should be either instant teleporting ability or genius ability i would say my number one would be time manipulation but some people say that you can't say that one that it breaks the laws of the universe so it's not like a valid thing that could actually be possible but they're also what like allowing people to use 
other superpowers as things that are possible. Like, that's bullshit. <laughs> yeah. As if a human flying is possible. Exactly. Biologically. Yeah, it breaks the rules of physics, so. So, time manipulation, that would obviously enable me to live forever. And hopefully you, I don't know. Please. And Leonard, obviously. Depending on how she turns out. <laughs> well, people who argue for the genius thing would say that if you're smart enough, you'll have the ability to figure out how to create a time-traveling device or a time-manipulating ray gun or whatever. I don't think so. You always need funding for that. And just being really smart doesn't mean you're going to be rich, or at least not super easily. If you're super smart, you should be able to know how to write the best grant papers to raise money or to be able to... Or like go on Jeopardy yeah. to win like there millions. You go. So you go on Jeopardy for three weeks, you make $15 million. Do you spend $2 million of that on advertising to tell the world what you're doing? That gets you enough future money, and then you use the rest that you have to start the project. And then my other part of time manipulation would also be just like in my mind. So it would be like where I could look at something and I could see it through time, you know? It's like, what did this piece of land look like in 8,000 BCE? Yeah, something that I'm really, really interested in. It's something I think about all the time. When I look at older buildings and I just think about all the people that were there and what their lives were like and what they thought. And I think about that a lot in regards to our house. There were some real racists here, I'm betting. Whoo, that's for sure. I wonder what the grandest ball was in our house. Ball? Oh. <laughs> Probably like, what, 14 people? <laughs> Probably. I'm sure this was a pretty nice house when it was built. I think that's a good way to end the travel episode is... You know, we start with basic travel, railroads and boats and things like that. And then we progress to cars, airplanes, and then time travel. But you didn't let me say what I'd choose as my superpower if I wasn't able to pick time manipulation. I was about to ask you, Emma, what superpower would you pick if you were not able to choose time manipulation? Teleportation. Fucking nailed it. Because that is, in a way, time manipulation because of how much time you'd save. Definitely. And it would make things way cheaper too. It has all the benefits of essentially you're allowing yourself flight in that too. Yeah. Theoretical flight. No, I think actual flight, like by most definitions, you just teleport yourself every single moment like you're flying. <laughs> teleport myself into the air. Just constant teleporting. <laughs> yeah. True. I'm really hoping that we can make a follow-up podcast to this in 50 years and none of what we said is true and it's just like crazy forms of transportation that we could have never conceived this is gonna be great if we're able to rip this all together in 50 years and be able to like go back and compare and contrast we're gonna eat this shit up like what would somebody have said in 1850 for the future of transportation you know the concept of airplanes and even cars would be insane obviously hot air balloons or like just crazy shit that we do Imagine the people that did the first hot air balloons when they actually worked. Oh my fucking God. Like This actually worked. I'm sure people didn't have enough safety things in place. All of a sudden, this little rickety lawn chair that you attach to a huge balloon is flying up into the air and you have no way of controlling and it. And you have an open flame. Open flame <laughs> with cloth above you as your only safety device. Yeah. It's very scary. At the mercy of the wind. The only thing scarier to be at the mercy of than wind is the ocean. I was going to say, the sea is the scariest. Yeah. And all of its many creatures, including krakens. 